Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a quick note about the foundation. Uh, We're working on a project to provide a low or no-cost resource to people that suffer from anxiety and depression. And the way we're going about it is we're going through about four or 5,000 different pieces of evidence, so peer-reviewed papers interviews with experts, interviews with sufferers, uh, alternative treatments, you know, et cetera. The whole goal, again, is to assemble all these sources and point out as many different possible treatments as we can, and it'll be a resource to people that suffer. So to find out more, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, uh, it's a little bit different topic, but I have uh, Dr. Chris Johnson. He's a nationally recognized expert on the opioid and heroin epidemic, which currently is... Uh, Killing, I guess, is estimated between, what, forty and 70,000 Americans a year. I hope those numbers are right, but it's a ton. Uh, he's spoken throughout the country on this topic to medical and non-medical audiences. Uh, it's an urgent message. I saw him on uh, Valuetainment, and uh, Patrick Bet David interviewed him, and it was great. And so I wanted to have him here. So, Chris, thank you so much for coming. Uh, thank you very much for having me. And yes, those uh, uh, the numbers from forty to seventy thousand, unfortunately, are accurate. Uh, uh, seventy thousand being the most recent numbers, and that is from uh, uh, the pandemic year of twenty twenty. Which, um, while the COVID crisis has certainly justifiably taken the headlines, um, right beneath that, and maybe even because of that, uh, the her- uh, the heroin and, and opioid and all substance in general, uh, those crises got even worse in the pandemic. And so, yeah, 70,000 um, Americans died in 2020 due to opioids. Yeah, that's that's a ton. How did the opioid crisis start? Like, where, where did Oxycontin, Oxycodone, and all these other, you know, synthetic heroines uh, come from? Well, the, the opioid crisis began uh, 20 years ago, uh, maybe a little over uh, 20 years ago. Uh, up in, in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, it's not that no one in the United States died of opioids. Um, uh, in fact, it was fairly stable from year to year. 
uh, up until the mid-1990s, about 4,000 Americans died of overdose from prescription opioids and another 2,000 died from heroin. And that, that was pretty stable. But then something changed um, in the mid-1990s, 95, 96 through, through 2000, that those numbers started doubling and then tripling and then quadrupling just in a few years, such that by 2010, 2012, you were having 15,000, 16,000 Americans uh, dying from prescription opioids uh, per year. And what changed in that time frame was the introduction of a, a pain reliever called OxyContin by Purdue Pharma. And along with the introduction of that drug came a campaign by the pharmaceutical industry to change the culture in American medicine about how we treat and manage chronic pain. Now, prior to the, the mid-1990s, we'd never approached a chronic pain, chronic back pain, chronic joint pain, arthritis by saying, why don't we put these patients on opioids and just sort of leave them there? That changed. And, and, and the reason it changed because OxyContin was introduced in the marketplace and it was being marketed as a safe reliever of chronic pain that could be used indefinitely and safely. And so that's really where the change in the culture began. It began with that product and in, in just those few years, some, uh, you know, from 1996, 97 through 2000, this massive campaign to influence the medical community to change how they prescribed opioids took place. And the result was very successful and, and pain became the fifth vital sign and pain was an undertreated epidemic and mm. prescriptions tripled. And they went like, hey. we went from like 90, you know, we went to over 200 million prescriptions for opioids by the uh, uh, early 2000, by, by the mid 2000s. How many? How many prescriptions? Oh, I think by, by 2010, there was over 200 million prescriptions for opioids uh, every year. That's almost one for every person in the United States. I think at the height of the prescription, yes, there was enough to prescribe ox, a bottle of Vicodin for every person in the country. Yeah. Wow. One thing you, you, so you mentioned pain is the fifth vital sign. I just had a family member in the hospital and yeah, right on the board, it has like these smiley to sad faces. What's your pain level? And the nurses ask every constant, you know, every few hours, what's your pain level? It's like they're emphasizing it so much that I would think that that also would contribute in no small part to people saying, okay, I'm going to take a pain pill because they keep bugging me about it and they're reminding me. And yeah, I'm in a little bit of pain, but hey, let's see if we can get rid of it. Right. And what that does is it's actually, there's a psychological, I, I don't claim to be a PhD psychologist, uh, uh, but I'm saying there, there's a phenomenon in psychology called priming. That is you introduce a topic and then the person starts thinking about it. So you start asking them about their pain and all of a sudden they become sort of like, hey, well, now let's think about my pain. Now, what is it now? And that actually sort of uh, changes how someone experiences. They might actually start to say, well, I've got more pain than I actually thought I did because I wasn't thinking about it. And so then they start assigning these numbers to pain, okay? That's where you get the zero to or one to 10 scale. And, and the problem with that is that pain is an emotional experience, okay? And so assigning a number to it is very unscientific, okay? When they say, and there's the, the American Pain Society is the ones that came up with the, the whole idea that pain is a vital sign, but unlike every other vital sign, which would be, say, blood pressure or heart rate or temperature, those things can actually be measured, Okay, those are measurable numbers. Those are objectively measurable numbers. But pain levels are reported. You just sort of think about it, try to judge it based on your past experience, how much you're having now versus before, then you assign a number. And so you've made a number into some, some emotional state. 
And then you treat it like you've got real data. And then you can start adding up, you know, a bunch of numbers and dividing and standard deviations. And you actually think like you're doing science and you've got decimal points, but you're really not. You're really just putting a number to an emotion and then starting to add and divide. And that's not yeah, very yeah, scientific. Yeah. It's, 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 and now that I, the idea that pain is a vital sign has been completely exploded. And in fact, the, the society that came up with that idea, the American Pain Society, has had to disband because it's been shown to be a pharmaceutical company mouthpiece. Well, not only that, I mean, I've had, like, five years ago, I was in a car accident. And I remember I went to the pain doctor. I didn't really have any pain, but the lawyer's like, go see him. So I go see him, and he's like, what level of pain do you have? I'm like, I don't know, zero or one, it's pretty much nothing. He goes, oh, okay, I'm going to prescribe you OxyContin. And I was like, okay. And I just walked out of the office and threw the prescription in the garbage. I'm like, I don't have any pain, but why'd you give me this stuff? But I just wonder how much, again, because pain is now, like you said, a vital sign how much it's also affected doctors and push them to prescribe when they normally wouldn't. What's very much true is that uh, doctors do not want to have any negative patient reviews and hospitals don't want to have negative patient reviews. Um, understand that the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services or CMS actually bases their compensation rate on patient satisfaction scores. And pain is one of the parameters that determines what a satisfaction score is. Okay. So Hospitals and clinics and all these other systems, uh, care, care systems, have an incentive to make sure that pain is, uh, is minimized by whatever measure possible to maximize the satisfaction score, not necessarily because they care long term about the patient's outcome, but because in the short term, that will affect reimbursement. And, and that's true for like every, every physician I know. As an example, I will tell you that when I was in my in medical school and residency training, in a residency for those who are not medical in the audience, residency is sort of like the internship and apprenticeship that a young doctor does right after medical school to sort of learn their specialty. And in those types of training, you're, you're taught the science, you're taught what's best for the patient. But ever since I went into private practice, got out of my residency, uh, I went, went into a physician group, what I got graded on was how many patients per hour did I see? How much did I bill per patient? How efficiently did I generate revenue? And what were my satisfaction scores? And that's true for every physician I know. And their satisfaction score is measured not because the pay, they, they, have a, a, they care greatly about the patient outcome, but satisfaction scores tell you how happy was your customer? Are they kind of going to come back and be a patient again? Are they going to complain about their bill? Or are they going to pay their bill on time? It's a financial metric. It's not a, it's not a healthcare. It's not a science metric. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, that's crazy. They're healthcare providers, but there's no metric for the, the healthcare they're supposed to provide. That's perverse. Well, I mean, I, I, it's, it's hard to justify high satisfaction scores and 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 the kind of money that the healthcare system you know in, continues to get more and more every year the US healthcare economy is now over 3 trillion dollars per year we're the only developed country in in the west uh, of the western de de democracies that actually has a falling falling life expectancy 
All right, our life expectancy is going down. Other countries, it's going up. And the reason why ours is going down is driven largely by overdose deaths, okay? Deaths due to despair, deaths due to addiction, okay? If, if you were to judge the entire U.S. healthcare system on performance and based it on like outcome, we should be among the least compensated healthcare systems in the world, okay? We're just not getting good results. So that's why it's not, we're not getting what we pay for as patients. And that's something that I, that's something I've been trying, I mean, trying to get change in the medical industry is difficult, but that is, that is something oh, yeah. that I, I continue to advocate for. Like, look, if we're going to pay for performance, let's base it on how the patients are doing, not how much we are successful at generating in terms of revenue. Well, don't worry. Over the last, uh, you know, 19, 20 months, things have gotten so much better. And now they really care about uh, patient outcomes and there's no censorship and, you know, science is celebrated. So we're, we're headed in the right direction. Oh, that's right. Science has ascended in this country. That's right. We got, you know, it's all about Evans. Everyone, everything's evidence-based now. Yeah. I want to ask you the, um, the transition from taking you know, Vicodin or Percocet or Oxycontin or whatever it is to, you know, street versions of it, uh, illegally gotten or heroin itself. What does that look like? Like what's responsible for the deaths? Are these deaths due to the opioids themselves or are these deaths due to someone transitioning to heroin and dying from that? Well, what is what is true is that uh, illicitly made fentanyl is now the most um, a, a deadly component of the opioid epidemic, okay? I believe fentanyl itself is like 30,000 of those deaths um, uh, per year of, of the 70,000. I think prescriptions are still about like 15,000 a year. Then there's another 15,000 from heroin. And then, then there's 40 from fentanyl or 30 to 40. Anyway, but, how, but one should not, but people don't generally just go straight from back pain to like, you know what? I think heroin is the answer. Okay. What often happens is that a person will get started on the prescription version. And then over time, they will develop a dependence, which may progress so that uh, someone is having withdrawal every day. Uh, and that could, that could lead them to have addiction. Okay. And so then when they find themselves that their, their regular prescribed medicines are not meeting their needs for, for to even get them feeling normal again, they have withdrawals every day, even with those meds, that's when they start going outside the regular medical marketplace to, uh, to get these other compounds, okay? But it should be remembered that three out of four users of illicit opioids, uh, three, 75% of people who transitioned to heroin and fentanyl, they began with prescriptions. So they were introduced to opioids with prescriptions. And you know you, you can psychologically wrap your head around that. I mean, they're, they're, it's like, these are medicines. Doctors are writing it. Pharmaceutical companies are making it. Therefore, it must be safe. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. But then what happens is the, the brain doesn't care about that. The brain just says, okay, now I'm getting this opioid molecule and it stops making its own opioids. It stops responding to these opioids as aggressively. And a person finds they need more and more over time. And that's a phenomenon of tolerance leading to dependence. And those, mm -hmm. that is how people get, that's how people transition to the heroin and fentanyl. Now, what is also true is that many times it could be, when you go outside the, the normal medical marketplace and get pills obtained from some other provider, it's very dangerous because you don't know what's in it. Okay. You might, you see stories all the time. If someone thought they were buying some, you know, uh, some Xanax uh, just outside, you know, from some, from some person, not, you know, just something, they got a mail order or something like that. And the Xanax is laced with fentanyl. They didn't know it was there. Okay. So you're taking your chances when you go outside, uh, you know, the, the medical industry to get these substances, because again, you, you don't know the dose, you don't know any contaminants in it. So you don't know what's in it. So you're taking your life in your own hands. But ultimately, yeah. the vast majority start with prescriptions. And that is why we still need to work on reducing 
the amount of prescribing we do and stop putting people on these medicines on a long-term basis? Yeah, I have two that I noticed is some places in some states, maybe all of them now, they're so, they, they've been so browbeaten about opioids that you know, what they'll do is like, you'll go into the hospital, they'll push them on you. Oh, have some, have some. And then when you get out of the hospital, they're like, nope, the only, we're not renewing the prescription, goodbye. And then you're like, so you've been put on them and you might, might have gotten a little bit of dependence and relief. And then they throw you out of the hospital and they're like, all right, we're not going to fill anything. And your doctor, you know, seems to be resistant to giving you any. And now you're in a problem place. And then maybe that's when some people go to the illicit drugs or maybe it happens much later on. I don't know. But it just seems like, again, there's this push-pull. They're pushed on you and then they're taken from you. Well, what's, I guess I can't speak knowing the entire, all of that data about like how much is, is, are people given while in the hospital and then what their experience is when they transition out. Um, certainly there's an incentive to make sure your pain is controlled while you're in the hospital because the hospital will send you, well, I mean, they don't send everyone, but uh, they send a certain percentage of those who stayed in the hospital. They, they will get a, what's called an HCAP score, or the, that's the patient satisfaction surveys that get mailed to you or you're asked to fill out. And about 5% will get, um, 5% of patients will get that. And hospitals want to make sure that if you're the one who fills it out, that your pain was well controlled. And so they have a lot of incentive to make sure your pain is controlled while you're there. So you give a good review. The other reason why some uh, patients might find that they're pushed on them quite a bit while they're in the hospital, very frankly, is physicians are cognizant of the demands on their colleagues' time, especially their on-call colleagues, okay? You know, being woken up at three o'clock in the morning from a nurse's station because a patient states they want more pain medicine, there's not an order for it, or there's not something supplied, then they have to wake up the on-call physician and ask for the order. Physicians don't want to do that to their colleagues who are on call, okay? So that's why they often prescribe or write for a lot of medicine, just so like they don't bother their colleagues. It's sort of like, you know, almost, they're just treating it like more professional courtesy, just so the patient doesn't have these extra demands that you get pushed on to another provider. So I can see uh, there's a couple of reasons why they might be particularly aggressive about doing medications in the hospital. Now, what is also true is that, you know, if say you're you're having a knee replacement surgery and you're in the hospital, it, it is also more important to have aggressive pain management right after the surgery. That is when you had all this tissue injury from the surgery and aggressive pain management is certainly uh, worthwhile then. Now, what you should have, what should happen after that is hopefully within a week, maybe a couple of weeks, you start to taper that down. And now the pain will still be there, but it won't be severe, but it's something that can be tolerable until the body heals. Yeah, but what's the, uh, I, I think I've heard you mention this, what's the window on, on addiction? Oxycontin and codone and all that. It's not long. It's just a few weeks, right? Well, it's, it, it isn't long. Now, granted, some people for, are able to sort of take a stable dose sometimes for years, but it, it's very, indi- it's very indi- individual, and, um, but there's always a risk, okay? And while you can find certain examples of exceptions who like they took the same dose, they've been taken for years and it doesn't seem to change, okay? But if you look at a, if you look at a, a lot of patients in larger studies, you'll find that about a third of patients who get put on opioids on an ongoing basis will develop dependence or addiction within two months. And that's the Kaiser uh, Foundation Washington Post study from 2016. So two months is not very long. Okay. So, and it may, may not even take that long. So you really want to um, not be on these medicines more than a couple of weeks. Again, for after a, a surgery, after a, an acute injury, you take it for a week, maybe two to, to take the edge off. But after that, you're really taking your chances at developing um, a dependence and addiction. Yeah. And if you've been, you know, let's say you've been in the hospital for two weeks and they've been medicating the heck out of you. Now you have, uh, you're two weeks down. 
and you come out and again, you know, who knows if you can get the prescriptions and, you know, you have to be responsible for tapering. You have to be responsible for talking to your doctor. I mean, I don't even know if most primary care physicians are really aware of this and actively talk to their patients that have been in hospital or have had pain and say like, you know, okay, you've been through a bad experience, but you got to be careful to stuff your own. We got to taper you as soon as we can without putting you in too much pain, you know? Right. And I guess, you know, being, being an emergency medicine doctor and I, I not, I mean, I don't know, I don't know the discussions that happened when upon discharge. Okay. That would be sort of a, a hospitalist and internist in consultation with surgical services. Um, that hasn't been my role in, in the healthcare sort of ecosystem, but that is a discussion that, that should take place every time someone goes home with these medicines and, you know, for whatever their cause was, is deciding, okay, what's our plan? We should have a plan for exiting these medicines before you leave the hospital. That, sh- that should be happening. Uh, I will say yeah. to any of your listeners, though, whoever's out there, that I want to make make sure that they understand that there's an exception to this, and those are the hospice patients, okay? Hospice patients who say have advancing cancer, which and, and it's not curable, and it's it is, and what what faces the patient now is just sort of quality of life. Okay, for them, I would say like they, that is comfort. However, it is achieved, even if it's by continuing escalation of doses of opioids, is the ethical thing to do. The reason we want to prevent dependence and addiction in in people and patients is is for all the things that addiction takes away from you. Uh, it takes away your ability to to hold a regular job. It takes away your ability to interact in a meaningful way with your family members to take care of your kids. If you are in a hospice situation, you've advanced cancer. Well, okay. Those have been your ability to be independent and working and making payments for education and more that's been taken away from you by the disease. So at that point, it's about comfort. And if a person develops dependence to opioids in that time frame, honestly, who cares? Well, that I understand. Make, yeah. make, make them comfortable. You, you make them comfortable. Okay. And if they develop dependence, or even if they, like, you, you take your chances in that situation. What we got into trouble with wasn't because we started treating hospice patients differently. It's what we did was we started saying, hey, you know, all these long-term opioids we've been using for hospice patients, why don't we use it for back pain? Okay. And the reason is a very, it's a very business reason. Okay. There aren't that many hospice patients, number one. Number two, they expire. So the time they have as a customer isn't often very long. Okay. So you can't make $3 billion a year on hospice patients, but you can make $3 billion a year on back pain. Yes, you can. What I had heard that Purdue Pharma, you know, was sued by the government and they, you know, paid a multi-billion dollar settlement. But so what's happening with them and the supply of all these, you know, uh, opioids, then what's the current climate, you know, right now in 2021 surrounding opioids? Well, what I would say is, uh, I mean, I don't know all the details of the settlement. What I what I have read is it's something like eighteen to twenty billion dollars, but it's paid out over, I think, eighteen to twenty years. I mean, it, it's. But what was also uh, uh, noticeable about that settlement, which was which was in one court in upstate New York with this judge who has been known to be very corporate friendly, is that the Sacklers themselves were never held accountable. They are getting to keep their billions. They don't have to admit wrongdoing. I guess they're supposed to surrender their places on the board, but. You know, they were supposed to have surrendered their places on the board back with the judgment they had in the early 2000s um, for for the illegal marketing techniques. So uh, all in all, these judgments against these companies have not proven a deterrent whatsoever. In fact, when Teva Pharmaceuticals got hit with a $20 billion judgment earlier this year, their stock went up, okay? Because now the investors say, okay, thank God it was only $20 billion. <laughs> You know, they can right. pay that. You know, you, you make 2 to $3 billion selling opioids a year. You have to pay out, you know, 
500 million or maybe 1 billion a year uh, in fines, you've, you're still you're still in the black. You're making billions a year still. So, I mean, that's a you make that business decision every time. And the only people that get harmed are the patients. But the patients are secondary in the marketplace. So that that's that is the infuriating thing about these settlements is that they're 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 made over time. Fines to these multi-billion dollar companies are just again cost of doing business. Maybe they'd be like to be avoided, but if they are, you know, it's worth it. You know, it, it, you know, overall they, they made the right business call by doing this. And again, patients are hurt, they're not made whole again. And it's just a, a it's just an, in my view, it's it's an embarrassment that our, our judicial system can't do better for the patients. So what, uh, I mean, what's the path forward as you see it? What, what are you trying to effectuate? What kind of change in the marketplace? Well, one of the things we are trying to do, and I can, I can speak for the state of Minnesota, is um, I work for the Department of Human Services Opioid Prescribing Work Group. And our task as part of the legislation that, that we've been given to, uh, to, to, to mandate here is to do more responsible opioid prescribing. And for the first time in, 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 in my state's history, Physicians are going to get sort of a report card on their opioid prescribing, okay, which is to say you're going to get a report every year letting you know exactly how much opioid you're prescribing, how you're prescribing relative to your peers, and whether your prescribing is reaching these threshold marks that the data shows puts a patient at risk. And we're going to give feedback to physicians saying, okay, if you're outside these markers, okay, why is this happening? Okay, then we, we do some education, and then we fought the next year. And okay, have you made steps to correct this? And if a physician continues to prescribe irresponsibly in the state of Minnesota, we can disenroll them from Medicaid payments, which, you know, you don't want that. Uh, you know, you don't want your license restricted to get, get on payers. So that's hard for you to find a job if that happens. So we are actually taking steps to, for the first time, and first time in my career that I've ever been talked to about my opioid prescribing. And so physicians are going to get feedback. And so they're going to, they're going to let, they're gonna, it's going to be made known you know, are you putting patients at risk of prescribing? And if you don't change things, we're actually going to affect your career. So hopefully that's going to be some incentive to doctors to prescribe more safely. When will we see the results of that? Well, probably not for like, you know, a decade, you know, so you're going to start to see like fewer and fewer people over time become dependent. Okay. But that doesn't solve the immediate problem of what do we do with those patients who are already here? Okay. Now, what is true is that we still do need to make sure they have access to treatment and fund treatment. And I would make treatment more, uh, um, more affordable. Medications such as buprenorphine and methadone have been shown to reduce uh, the risk of death for those who've developed opioid use disorder. Um, but again, it, it's the risk of death is is not back to what it was before. I mean, it's a very imperfect treatment, so you 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 don't want to be in that spot. So we want to prevent the development of new chronic users of opioids, and we want to make sure those who developed a use disorder get the treatment, even understanding it's you know it's very imperfect. Okay. Well, what happened what, I if, see, um... what I want to see going forward is like we've the American medical system, because it's a revenue driven system, which means everyone in the system from from the healthcare systems to the insurance companies to the pharmaceutical companies to the doctors makes more money, the more healthcare people consume. And so we've actually have an incentive to, you know, not have people healthy and independent, but sort of be in a chronic state of disease. So if you're chronically unwell, and you go back to the doctor to get your medications, you kind of made a little bit better, then you come back again because you're not feeling so good. That is the ideal customer in a revenue-driven system. We want people consuming healthcare all the time. And if you're kind of healthy, then we scare you with like, well, maybe you're pre-cancerous, you're pre-diabetic, you're pre-hypertensive, time to get all the screening tests. So selling you healthcare services all the time is the mode of a private revenue-driven uh, uh, system. And what I think we need is a more 
a public-based system. There are other countries that manage to, to get healthier populations spending a lot less money, but they have more national controls about that. And so uh, a more national and, and, and uh, patient-driven system that doesn't simply reward selling of services, um, I think is the long-term answer. But that's going to be tough because no one in the healthcare industry wants to do that because business is booming right now. Yeah, this would probably be like really hyper aggressive, but what if you, any patient that dies, let's say uh, up to six months after a particular doctor has cared for them, what if you kept stats on that and tied back again, the number of deaths to the doctor that cared for the person? What do you think that would do? Or would that be just so draconian that it would be a, a complete chilling effect on prescribing it at all? I guess I guess it's hard to comment on that. I don't I don't know. I mean, I have I mean, there are cases of opioid overdose deaths where uh, the families of those who died do seek legal recourse against the physician that cared for them. I'm actually involved in one such case. So I, I could there be a case? There could be. You know, I, I and, and all the all that data is, is sort of you know it's, it's still part of the patient record and that is sort of discoverable. I don't know necessarily that a there's going to be a national database that would be set up to keep track of that. And then you have to do like the cause of death and was how, how and then it's always it's sort of tough to determine what, how, what was the actual cause of death? Was it multi-fact, you know, multiple factors contributing or was it just due to the opioids and was the opioids, was it all just the prescribing? And so it gets a bit complicated, but uh, I do know that yeah, there are true. cases, I do know that there are cases where families of those who died have sought, um, have sought action against their caregivers and, 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 I guess we'll have to see whether that uh, we'll need more of that uh, because some of them, I, I frankly, they've got a case. I think it could be a good idea. It could be a terrible idea. It just came to mind. I do think what you're saying, or what others saying, where's the accountability in the system? Okay, we're not seeing that the justice system has held the pharmaceutical companies to any sort of account. They've imposed fines, but that hasn't stopped them. Okay, they continue to put patients in harm's way. Remember, Purdue Pharma had over 600 million judgment in 2007. All right, that was a long time ago. It didn't stop them. Okay, so these fines that are just imposed on these pharmaceutical companies for uh, unethical practices that were very lucrative, they get fines. The fines are nothing compared to what they made. And they seem to and and again, nothing is done to protect the patient. So you're asking, where is the accountability? And if we're not, who, who does need to have jail time? I mean, do executives need to go to jail first? Is that what it's going to take? Maybe. I, I believe I. If, if that came to it, I would be happy to take up the case to see if I could get an executive for the pharmaceutical industry put in jail. Absolutely. Well, very good. Dr. Chris, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and to keep tabs on this and to, you know, yeah, again, to, to monitor what's going on with uh, you know, the opioid problem? Well, I think probably the best way for uh, uh, members of your audience to contact me would be through my website. That is endtheopioidcrisis.com. Uh, and the opioidcrisis.com. And there you can find a way to message me. Uh, you would also be able to uh, uh, see a link on that webpage to my TED talk. I would appreciate all the views I can get and all that also on that webpage. I think I've put up the uh, the interview on uh, valuetainment. So uh, take a look at that as well. Uh, but that would be the best way to uh, look at what I've done. Reach out if you need to. Well, very good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. You have a great uh, rest of your day. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? 
Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.